Good morning, church. If, uh, if you got your Bible handy and you'd want to, to turn in it, um, we're in Luke chapter 19, starting with verse 28. I'll give you just a few seconds to find it. Luke chapter 19, <clears throat> starting with verse 28, as we continue on Jesus' road to Jerusalem. Okay, Luke 19, starting with verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Jesus, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Thank you, sir. This was a good Sunday to have a dramatic reading by Dave Canfield. Here, Ash, I'm going to give this to you. Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. So this is the final week of our uh, series, series that we entitled The Road. Uh, so since the first Sunday of Lent, which was March 5th, we've been journeying with Jesus on the road. And almost every passage that we've looked at, Jesus, the, or Luke, the writer uh, of this gospel, has been saying that Jesus is on his way, that he is on the road, that he is headed towards Jerusalem. And today, on this Palm Sunday, we finally get Jesus's entrance into the city of Jerusalem. We finally get what in your Bibles is titled the triumphal entry. But when you read it, and when it's so uh, depth, depthfully read by Dave Canfield, we realize that there is something 
slightly anticlimactic about what Jesus is doing in Jerusalem on this particular Palm Sunday. So the church takes this day, Palm Sunday, as an opportunity to set aside time and to look towards the cross. So Palm Sunday is the beginning of what we commonly refer to in the Christian calendar as Holy Week. Because, as we'll see in this passage, that what Jesus, is, what Jesus does here and the way in which he enters the city of Jerusalem really sets the trajectory, really uh, speeds things up in a sense, m- propelling him, moving him towards the cross. It really is the beginning of Jesus' Passion Week. But uh, Palm Sunday for me growing up was something a little different than that. Uh, I loved Palm Sunday growing up because I got the palm fronds that you guys have in your laps, and I could hit my brothers with them, right? This was fun for me. But the other reason I loved Palm Sunday growing up is because we would have, I don't know if, any, if it, those of you who grew up in uh, a, tr- a church tradition like mine, we had what we called a cantata. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? A cantata is just an Easter musical. And part of the reason I like this is because there was always livestock involved, like real, true livestock. They would bring donkeys and chickens up on stage, which didn't usually happen in my church. And the other reason that uh, Palm Sunday was interesting was because on this day when you had this cantata, this Easter musical, uh, it was the one day a year where some man in your church got the excuse to run around in a loincloth in red food coloring. Because historical accuracy is incredibly important. When you're, when you're putting on an Easter cantata, he couldn't have been in a robe or something. No, he has to wear a loincloth. Jeez Louise, what were we thinking? Anyways, uh, Good Friday and Easter are, for Christians, the two most pivotal days of the year. But uh, for, for Christians as well, we often don't think of Good Friday and Easter being the two most pivotal days in the history of the cosmos. And Palm Sunday sets us on a trajectory to these two most pivotal days. When we look at what Jesus accomplished, both on the cross and in the resurrection, it is Palm Sunday that sets the whole tick clocking, or clock ticking, wow. That's real dyslexia. Uh, sets the clock a ticking towards Jesus' final uh, mission, his plan, to be crucified and to die on a cross for all of us. So, when we see this parade, this uh, kind of movement of people from outside of Jerusalem into the eastern gate of Jerusalem, what are we thinking? What comes to mind? I don't know about you, but for me, I grew up going to parades. Uh, there's this big parade in Clear Lake where my uh, grandparents grew up, and we were there every 4th of July. You can go up if you want this 4th. It's very close. Uh, but the big thing about that parade was that it's one of the bigger parades in, in northern Iowa, and so there were always political figures that would come through. And especially on uh, primary years, there would be the big ones would come through. And I just remember my grandpa... Uh, talking to my grandma or to one of my great uncles or to one of my uncles and saying, I wonder who's going to come today. Is it going to be Newt? Is it going to be Bill and Hillary? 
Is it going to be George Bush? We, it was always this kind of like, there was this hum in the crowd because we were wondering who, what political candidate was actually going to walk down the street because, you know, that mile and a half could really win you Iowa. It can, I guess. Otherwise, why would they do it? Uh, and that's the image I think we have, the cantata image and the parade image that comes to mind when we talk about Palm Sunday. But the image that probably should come into your mind is not like a parade in Clear Lake on the 4th of July. The image that should probably come into your mind is something a little bit closer to, who remembers the Arab Spring for three or four years ago? Do you remember that? Those, those images of Tahir Square in Egypt and all this mass of people. It was probably a little bit more like that, a little bit more politically charged than your, than your average 4th of July parade, than it was uh, like anything else. And so when we look at what was happening here on this Palm Sunday, we have to kind of get down into the feet, into the shoes of the people who were actually lauding Jesus, who were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, who were laying their cloaks on the ground before his donkey, who were waving palm branches like the ones you shall not wave in the face of your neighbor. That's that's an instruction. But in order to really understand what's going on here, what we need to look at is kind of the historical setting, what the actual backdrop to this Palm Sunday was. Because when we understand that, this day takes on a ton of really interesting significance for us. So, uh, the main thing that you have to understand is that Palm Sunday, this day when Jesus enters Jerusalem, is exactly a week before the Jewish festival of the Passover, Does anybody know what the Passover is? You can raise your hand if you do. If not, that's good too, because we're talking about it. The Passover is the celebration that the Hebrew people had every year uh, to celebrate or to commemorate God's freeing them from uh, slavery in Egypt. This is the the most pivotal and the most talked about uh, thing in the past of the Hebrew people. They, uh, They are remembering or by virtue of having a meal, uh, the time in which Jesus, or not Jesus, but God delivered them from captivity. And for generation after generation, every year, the Passover was celebrated. And, it, and at these times, at these times of Passover, Jerusalem would swell. It would get multiple times bigger than it, it's, it usually was. A bunch of people would kind of clamor to get in to Jerusalem. And people from the surrounding regions would come a week early. They would come a week early and they would make preparations for that week because you had to get a lamb and you had to make you may had to make preparations for this big feast. And so the population would begin to swell on that day. But remember, at this time in in Israel, Israel was not a sovereign nation, were they? They were occupied by the Romans. And the Roman authorities allowed Israel to continue to celebrate their religious holidays. They continued to allow them to celebrate the Passover. This celebration of this day when Israel was liberated from slavery, right? From slavery in Egypt, when they were liberated from an oppressor, in a sense. Can you imagine this in our day? If let's just say Canada took us over, right? 
and then they were still allowing us to celebrate the 4th of July. Can you imagine the type of um, fireworks that would happen in a, in, a, in a time like that? Yet these Jewish people in Jerusalem were still celebrating this day in which they were freed from captivity, in which they were freed from their oppressors, and yet they had an oppressor right there in their very Midst. It was a very serious time. And because of this serious time, something else happened. And that something else that happened is that uh, the Roman governor over that region of Palestine, his name was Pontius Pilate, would actually marshal his troops and bring them into Israel for that week. So beginning on today, this Palm Sunday, this day, this week before Passover, Pontius Pilate, he was in the, on the west coast of the Mediterranean in this town called Caesarea. You can look it up. It's, it's not really a town anymore, but all the Roman ruins still stand. It's beautiful. I was showing Ashley it this week because I'm a nerd, and I show my wife uh, Bible history pictures on YouTube. Um, it's true. So he would marshal his troops, and he would come in from the west. And Pontius Pilate would take up residence in Jerusalem for that week. As a, and he would station his, uh, his guards, or his army, essentially, all over the city of Jerusalem as a way of saying to the people, this is your freedom celebration, but you will not be free today, right? He was communicating in very clear terms to these people that, they were, that things were not going to get out of hand. And those Roman authorities were stationed all over the place to ensure that if a riot did start up, and riots did start, and we read in the history of, of Israel that these type of riots did start. It was a very politically divisive time that these Roman soldiers would stamp it out before anything would get out of hand. And Jesus is in this context, and he is riding in to Jerusalem. Now, if Pontius Pilate was riding in from the west, Jesus had come down around Samaria and was riding in from the east. Some scholars say that at the very same time that Pontius Pilate might have been coming into the city from the west, Jesus is coming into the city from the east. Can you imagine the kind of conflagration that that would cause, right? And so Jesus, that conflagration is a big fire, just for the record. One time I used the word conflagration, and I said it was, and Ashley said, do you know what that word means? And I said, no, it's like a coming together of two things. And she's like, I'm pretty sure that's not what it means. Anyways, um, sometimes I use big words and I don't even know what they mean. Anyways, uh, so as Jesus is coming into, into the city, Pontius Pilate is also possibly coming into the city. And as Jesus is being lauded as king as a deliverer of the Jewish people, as people are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and waving those palm fronds that you have in your hands, which means, Hosanna, which just means uh, the Lord will save us, right? And they're, as they're laying their cloaks on the ground in front of Jesus, right? These people believe, these people believe that Jesus is going to deliver them from the Romans. This is what they believe. And the disciples believe it right along with them. They believe that Jesus is going to march into Jerusalem, that he is going to marshal an army, and that he's going directly to the Roman garrison. This is what they believe is going to happen. And Jesus is doing everything in his power to set this up as well. 
he, he plays into some of these prophecies, right, about what the, what the deliverer of Israel would do. In Zechariah 9.9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and glorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Right? What did Jesus say to his disciples? Go get me a donkey. I need to ride into Jerusalem on top of that. The scholar Daryl Bach, he says this, the events about to happen in Jerusalem are not a surprise to him, him being Jesus. He knows exactly what he is riding into. Jesus is directing the sequence of events that lead to his death. Jesus knows what he's doing here. He is purposely uh, using this imagery right? Because he actually is the king, the deliverer that Israel was hoping for, but something for his observers, for his, at that time, worshipers at this triumphal entry is amiss, isn't it? Everyone in Jerusalem, all of the Jewish people in the city believe that Jesus is going into the city to kick out the Romans. They all wanted him to be set up as the Messiah, as the Deliverer, as Hosanna, the one that would bring their peace. They all believed that this is what Jesus was doing. Even Jesus' closest disciples believed that this was ultimately what Jesus was going to do, right? We know this because they, had, they abandoned him when he got crucified because they thought this was going to be completely different than what it was. So he, he rides into town, and instead of going to the Roman legion, or to the Roman garrison, where does he go? The temple. He goes, he doesn't go to the Roman legion and kick out, or to the Roman garrison and kick out the legions. He goes to the temple, and he kicks out the religious authorities. What in the world is Jesus doing on this day? In verse 45, it's a, beginning in verse 45, it says this, When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. Now, they're selling because this is Passover, correct? And there was a lot of economy happening this week because the city was twice, two, three times its size. People needed to buy things. They bought the lambs that they would slaughter and have during their Seder meal at the temple, right? So there was a big economy, just, just like Christmas, a big economy surrounding this event. And what does Jesus do? He goes straight into there and he kicks them out. And he says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Everyone calling Hosanna wanted him to go directly to the garrison, but he went to the temple and totally brings to a halt the commercial activities surrounding the Passover. Uh, one translation, I think it's Mark, says he actually sets up shop there for the entire week until he celebrates Passover with his, with his followers. So for that entire week, he's like, he brings everything to a screeching halt. Jesus does something completely unexpected. He goes into Jerusalem, is lauded as king, as deliverer, as Messiah, and rather than doing what everyone wanted him to do, he does the exact opposite he does the exact opposite. Now, what does this do to all the people who were there proclaiming him as king? What does this make them think? What do they then believe about Jesus? The people of Israel expected Jesus to do one thing, and he did something totally different. 
But if you read the history of the Old Testament, this is not a very strange thing for Jesus to do, really. The prophets were always weighing their most pointed criticisms against Israel itself, right? At, uh, at, they were weighing their criticisms against unjust, unjust kings and wayward people. Jesus is, in many ways, simply fulfilling this office of prophet. Yes, he wants to liberate the people from oppression. He does want to do this, right? This is his mission. He wants them to turn to him in repentance. And we see this in the triumphal entry that Jesus says to Israel, if you would just turn to me, right? If you would just turn to me, you wouldn't be destroyed. A destruction that ends up happening in AD 70 when the Romans finally get tired of Israel's insubordination and they come down and they actually do this. They actually don't leave any stone on another stone. They completely destroy the temple. Jerusalem is completely wiped out. Just 70, well, 40-ish years after when Jesus says this, this thing that Jesus says is going to happen, happens. And he longs for them to turn to him. He longs for them to turn and repent. Jesus is fulfilling this office of a prophet. He's, he's communicating the truth about what is going to happen to these people and that he is a different type of king, he is a different type of Messiah than they first expected. And this has something important to say to us here today as well. We sometimes think that Jesus is going to affirm us, don't we? Sometimes that Jesus is, we believe that Jesus is in some real and true sense on our side. That our faith is simply a tool that we use to make us feel better about ourselves. And while this is true in some sense, it's not everything. None of us should be surprised when the word of God comes to us in a way that strikes us through and convicts us. None of us should be surprised by that. None of us should be surprised when the Word of God comes to us and it counters us in some real and true sense, that it, that it cuts through some of our preconceived notions about what we should be doing or who we are. The role of the prophet is simply to tell the truth. The role of the prophet is not to tell about the future, primarily. The primary role of the prophet in the scriptures is simply to tell the truth. And when the word of God comes to us, it tells us the truth about ourselves. And very often, the truth about ourselves is something we have been avoiding, right? So we should not be surprised when the word of God comes to us, when Jesus comes to us, and what he has to say to us is not as affirming as we wanted it to be, right? We should not be surprised when Jesus, in some real and true sense, subverts our expectations of him, right? This should not come as a surprise to us, but yet it does all the time. All the time it does, because we really want to be like this crowd who believe that Jesus wants to do for us what we want him to do for us, right? We want Jesus to be for us what we want Jesus to be for us. We don't want him to be what he needs to be for us. We don't want him to be who he, uh, who he truly is for us. We don't want him to tell us the truth about who we are. We often don't want that. And yet, and yet, this is how Jesus comes to us, fully willing to tell us the truth about ourselves 
and about our world. And this is how he came to his people. He, he told them the truth. And this, this truth that he had to tell them subverted their expectations about what the Messiah would be. And because of that, they couldn't even see him. Right? Just a week after this, they crucify him. They turn on him. I read an article this week in Scientific America, because I do that occasionally. Um, and uh, in, this scientific, in this article, it says that when, our, when we have preconceived uh, expectations about what, how something should happen, and when uh, that thing doesn't happen the way we want it to, we, uh, our brains react in such a way that feels to us like pain. That emotionally, it, it, our brains respond to it in the same way that we would respond to, re- respond to physical pain, right? And so when these uh, people in Israel hear Jesus not, or see Jesus not doing what they had expected him to do, in mass, they experience it as a kind of pain, right? And it's not surprising then that they turn on him in just a, just a week after this because he did not meet their expectations. So that was number one. I didn't even say that that was number one, but that was number one. Number two, what this passage means for us today. We must see ourselves among the crowds. Now, what do you mean, Nick? You just said we shouldn't see ourselves amongst the crowds because they didn't get it right. Well, what, what I mean is that we should see ourselves We need to place ourselves in the story, in a sense, that we need to see ourselves, and this is why palm branches on Palm Sunday are such a significant thing. We need to see ourselves amongst the crowd. This is what uh, the scholar N.T. Wright says. The gospel invites us to make this story our own, to live within the narrative in all its twists and turns, to see ourselves amongst the crowds following Jesus and witness his kingdom-bringing work. To see ourselves also in the long-range continuation of the narrative that we call, in fear and trembling, the life of the church. Take the branch in your hand for a moment. Tactile things are very good. I learned this in elementary school. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have Jesus riding in on a donkey? to have the people proclaiming him as king, as Messiah, as Hosanna, to be praising him for who he was, believing that he was something other than he actually was. The reason we tell this story and the reason we give out these palm branches is not because we want uh, to worship Jesus uh, improperly. It's not because we want to confuse ourselves about what Uh, Jesus did. It's because we want to remind ourselves that we worship Jesus in a different way than the crowds did. The palm branch in your hand reminds you that you are of a different ilk than the crowd that worshiped him on that first Palm Sunday, that you worship Jesus for who he truly was and is, and that you are in a long line of people for 2,000 years who have done the same. Worshiping Jesus on Palm Sunday inevitably leads us not to uh, victory over the Romans, but it inevitably leads us to the cross on Good Friday because this is what Jesus inaugurated. Jesus knew that when he came into Jerusalem, 
when he, when he made this political hubbub in the city, that this was going to lead him somewhere. It was going to lead him directly to Jerusalem and to the cross. It was going to lead him to Golgotha. And yet we worship Jesus knowing full well what type of king he is. We worship Jesus knowing full well that the cross is an affront, that it's an offense, but it is, our, it is also our very way to life. Jesus will subvert our expectations. He did that week in Jerusalem, right? He will not always come to us in a manner we think best. But if we worship him, we see him for who he, uh, who he is. And if we allow him to tell us the truth, then on the backside of that cross is resurrection. And the truth of the Christian faith is that we don't worship Jesus who does all the things we want him to do, right, for us. The truth of the Christian faith is that we, we worship a victorious king, but whose throne is not found uh, in a traditional way, but whose throne is a cross and whose victory is resurrection. This is the God that we serve. And during the Passion Week, we, we do worship that God. We do worship Jesus as the bringer of God's truth, light, and forgiveness into the world. And today, on this Palm Sunday, we worship Jesus for who he actually was, the bringer of life, the bringer of my life. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you today, God. Father, we, uh, we want to be a people who are on a journey with you, that we live, Father, in connection to you in a real and powerful sense. Jesus, this week, would you show us who you are? Would we not be deceived or confused, God? Would we not uh, look to you to do what we want you to do, but rather would we look to you as the source and bringer of our very lives? Father, we ask that you would tell us the truth about ourselves and that we would learn to love Jesus better this week. Help us to be on a journey with you. Bring us back here uh, again this Friday and Saturday and Sunday as we journey with you this holy week. May we be your people and may you be our God. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Go in the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.